I guested on Damien Abraham's Turned Out a Punk podcast a few years back. In fact, I was his third guest, and Damien opens each episode with the simple query, how did you get into punk? While answering the question, I remember saying that I always felt more like a metalhead in punk circles and a punk rocker in metal circles. This out-of-place feeling while co-mingling with both sides of the fence has stayed with me my whole life. I felt accepted and excluded simultaneously within my own family growing up and felt that way throughout school, having two fingers in each pie but never being part of any pie. Underground musics like metal and punk attract these exiled, displaced types, and I can now see how I was almost preordained for this kind of music and culture. Well, the tradition continues. Even to this day, being in the band that I'm in and playing the music that I do, I've never felt fully accepted into any scene. Too hard for indie rock, too soft for heavy metal, too mid-tempo for punk, and hell, even too squeaky clean for rock and roll. I've lamented the state of rock on this podcast time and time again, and how it isn't a very cohesive scene. It has always been a giant crapshoot, hoping enough people are on the same musical page as us in order to come out to the shows without relying on a trend or a current sound. As wild and rebellious as rock music likes to think it is, it's actually very homogenous and conservative. When styles and cultures mix, rock music is slow to accept. It's this stubbornness that has cost the music dearly in recent years, now branded as stagnant and passé. Being of mixed race, I've always welcomed blending, combining, and intermingling together in my personal life and professional life. I've always loved music that was a result of mixtures like rap music, crossover speed metal, bands like The Bad Brains, The Beastie Boys, Mr. Bungle, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, and Motorhead. In our band, influences run from Thin Lizzy and ZZ Top to Cool Keith, James Brown, and Black Flag. We are the definition of a mongrel band. When I discovered Junkyard on their first album, I could not believe they were a punk rock and roll band of the highest pedigree. Namely, Brian Baker of Minor Threat and Dag Nasty and Chris Gates of The Big Boys. Watching their videos for Hollywood and Simple Man on Much Music up here in Canada, I thought they were a dyed-in-the-wool biker-type band, a la Circus of Power or Guns N' Roses or Danzig. You know, bands that were riding high at the time. They had all the right ingredients, namely an aesthetic that adhered to denim, leather, guitar licks, bikers, whiskey. But when I found out Brian Baker was in the band, looking the way he did, it felt like finding out Mr. Rogers was really Skeletor, or Mary Poppins was actually Morticia Adams, but in the best way possible. I was happy to see that someone else thought the way I did, smashing through boundaries and mixing freely. Throughout the years, I have always used Junkyard as my shield when critics would come at us thinking we played lowbrow hamburger rock. Also, if a critic didn't know who Junkyard were, it was also a good litmus test to see how dim-witted they truly were. 
The band's slim discography of two full lengths, their self-titled 1989 album and 1991's Sixes, Sevens, and Nines were strong enough to keep people engaged and prick up ears when they released their first album in 26 years back in 2017 entitled High Water. It doesn't seem to matter how many years pass in between the world getting their junkyard fix or not, because when junkyard builds it, they come. We played with Junkyard back in February out in California. In fact, those were our last shows before COVID-19 kept us all at home. Leading up to the run, I was excited to meet and play with the band. And sure enough, they proved to all be rock and roll gentlemen. David Roach, Patrick Mazingo, Todd Muscat, Tim Mosher, and Jimmy James. I was thrilled to play with a band I had known about for so long and used as an inspiration. This talk with drummer Patrick Mazingo outlines the beginnings of the band into present day. He's pretty thorough, so if you weren't a Junkyard fan before, I'm sure you will be once you're finished listening. And if you want to hear even more Junkyard-related stuff, Damien Abraham's Turned Out a Punk podcast will feature Junkyard's Brian Baker next week. During the COVID-19 crisis, the band have taken it upon themselves to start a page on their website at junkyardblues.com. Now that's blues spelled B-L-O-O-Z-E dot com with a how you can help page geared towards helping out various sectors in the music community. Live venues, there's guitar lessons from Jimmy James and Tracy Guns up there, including donating a portion of their own merch sales to Meals on Wheels America. I urge anyone who has always wanted some junkyard swag to visit the site now. I also want to say that while we are in self-isolation, keeping a two-meter distance from one another when we are outside, washing our hands and staying away from the elderly except to drop off food and supplies... I will be doing this podcast weekly. I've been doing the podcast now for nine years, but it's been bi-weekly. Going weekly now really steps up the work on this thing, but I'm glad to do it if it can relieve someone out there from thinking about the crisis for a few minutes and gives me something to take my mind off it as well. If you can, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud and leave a review and or a message about it. That would be much appreciated. Okay, here we go. Patrick Mazingo is this episode's guest, and it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. They play the Guinness Tango School of Tello for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from Fuck Joe. Stop playing Hang Joe. When the weather is bad and there's nothing much to do, take a listen, would you now, to what Danko Jones would do. It's the middle of the night and you better do it fast. Turn the speakers up loud for Danko's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts now. Hey, Patrick, how you doing, man? Good, how are you? Good, good. You sound very crystal clear. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> you and I were talking at uh, Brick by Brick in San uh-huh. Diego, like that first night of, of the shows that we did together, and I started to kind of pick your, pick your brain about Junkyard, 
and uh-huh. uh, immediately realized that this would be great uh, to to have you on the podcast so you can kind of lay out the whole history, the bio of Junkyard, because Junkyard to me has been one of those bands I've always used as a reference point for myself and uh-huh. for critics who come at us and uh-huh. for, for people who don't know where we stand. Junkyard has always been the band where I've gone, well, listen, hard rockers and punk rockers can get together and make music and we could sound like a hard and hard rock and roll band but we've got our punk roots and then i would always say like look at junkyard and it's, yeah yeah and you guys have always been that reference point so can you tell me cuz i don't know how did you guys <laughs> meet up with chris gates and brian baker to form this kind of you know blues rock and roll band it's a, it's a weird i mean it's it's a weird story because basically mm-hmm. like and this goes back to I, let's see we you know go in the time machine and let's go back to probably let's yeah i'll go back to the first time where i met baker i was playing in a band in la uh called america's hardcore and it was with um uh, it was with a guy named uh, Drew Bernstein that uh, later on, after the punk scene kind of went away, he ended up uh, having a, a clothing business called Lip Service that, you know, Axel wore all of their gear and stuff. So uh, Drew, <clears throat> excuse me. So Drew started this band and he wanted this band basically to be a straight edge band, four piece. You know, the, our reference point was Minor Threat. We ended up playing to get with Minor Threat when they came out to uh, L.A., uh, we, uh, I, I think it was like, basically it was like minor threat battalion of saints, youth brigade, uh, my band America's hardcore and probably like ill repute and, you know, uh, Dr. No for all, you know, I, I right. think there's video online somewhere of the show. And, uh, sometimes I look back at it and I'm like, how the hell did I play that fast? I, I guess I was young, <laughs> but, uh, so that, that was the first time that I met Baker and, um, we we chatted for quite a while, uh, you know, just hanging out, uh, you know, and both both of our vans were parked next to each other. And, um, you know, we just started talking about like everything, talking about music. And um, and then we got into, you know, rock and roll stuff. And um, at that point, we actually had to walk away from our vans because we didn't want to be caught in a conversation around all these hardcore minor threat fans <laughs> talking about Aerosmith and the first time that we saw Kiss and how, you know, and then it, it, it riffed into like, well, you know, the first time I saw Kiss was 1977. And uh, unfortunately, this band called Cheap Trick opened up. And then the very next day, I sold all my Kiss records to buy all Cheap Trick records. And then Brian was saying the same thing about, you know, some bill that he saw where I, he can't remember. I can't remember who the headliner was, but Aerosmith was the opening act. And he did the same thing. And he's like, oh, God, this guy, Joe Perry, he's just an amazing mess. But it's not even Joe Perry that's really the main guitar player. It's Brad Whitford. And it was like, I think one of the hardcore guys, you know, walked by with his like 40 ounce of old English guy. Like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? We're like, oh, man. Hey, man, uh, we're not talking about anything. (laughs) (laughs) So we kind of uh, kept in touch after that. And um, at that point, he he had mentioned and granted, this goes back to like 81. um, He had talked about he goes, you know, eventually I'd like to move to L.A. and, you know, maybe do something. But he goes, you know, I don't know. You know, we're both, um, you know, we're both basically 17 and, you know, we're basically, you know, we're a year away from graduating high school, thinking about college and all that. So, you know, 
it was just it was one of those conversations like if brian could he would move to la and i think he he was even i think i think at that point he was toying with the whole dag nasty thing and uh so that kind of um so we basically corresponded back and forth just you know doing the old school writing letters and um and then the next time uh, and then after i didn't run into brian for probably I would say probably six years. I think the le- the next time I ran into Brian after 1981 was probably, uh, I would say probably 86 or something like that when he had finally moved Agnasty out to LA. But, uh, and then as far as Chris Gates goes, um, I was on tour with uh, one of the, basically, I guess the last punk band that I was in, which is uh, Decry. And uh, we were on tour and I think we may have been on tour with Rob Power. I'm not sure, but uh, we played Austin, and um, and I remember me and Todd were like we were, we were playing this place. It was raining inside the club. It was a complete mess, and uh, Chris was standing there. I think he was holding up the PA system because I think the uh, one of the PA columns was about to fall down. And uh, I just remember going on stage and looking over at Todd, and um, I'm like, Todd, that's Chris from the Big Boys. And Todd's like, I, I know. We're, all of a sudden, we got kind of nervous because it was like, oh, my God, this guy's, you know, he's a legend. And uh, so we played, and uh, he came up to us afterwards, and uh, he, he came up specifically to me and Todd. And he's like, man, he goes, if I ever get a band together, I want to do a rock band with you guys as a rhythm section. And we were just like, whoa, because at that point, that was that was like 84, 85, when punk rock was really going the way of I think a lot of the bands, you know, back then, they went a bunch of different ways. Like for Decry, we went the way of, um, I guess you would call it um, Aerosmith meets the Dead Boys, and they landed uh, living, you know, with adolescents. So it was kind of like that weird vibe that we went to, whereas other bands really went like, you know, and I'm not bagging on them or anything, but like SSD Control went like really like insane, almost like like they just took uh, four or five ACDC songs, played them a little faster, and they went really just like full bore. And um, even like, you know, it happened to bands like TSOL where they split up, and but that was mm-hmm. later on. That was like yeah. 87, 88. But um, for us, Decry had started off in, uh, I joined the band, they were already together for about a year, and then I joined the band in uh, 84 when we put out the Falling record. So basically what happened with that was, you know, we, we I had kept in touch with uh, Chris for the longest time after that, because he had mentioned he was going to move out to L.A., and uh, uh, we, put out a, we put out an EP that, it's called the Japanese EP, and uh, basically the cover of the um, the cover of the record is uh, the uh, kanji symbol that was also on Hotter Than Hell. So we took that. So, I mean, and then if you look at the back cover, we look like the biggest drag queens ever. We look like a cross between Hanoi Rocks and like Christian Death. We had no clue what we were doing, <laughs> but we just know that we had to have big hair and throw right. some makeup on and, you know, put, you know, make right. sure our leather jackets were nice and pressed rather than wrinkled or whatever. Right. And uh, so we, we did that and, and next thing you know, I, you know, Chris was coming down to all the Decry shows when we kind of went to the rock and roll uh, route. And Decry hit the road in 85. And that was basically, we were firing on all eight cylinders. We were like, we were a rock and roll band. And um, 
and and I, I'm not bagging on Decry Singer at all, but we were like, you know, we kind of need a singer that can sing, and we're going to take like the Decry I the Decry ideology of this rock and roll punk band, but we're going to take it back to L.A. because at that point, that's when kind of Guns N' Roses were starting out, and Decry had actually uh, before we went out on this tour. Um, uh, we played at a place called Madame Wong's in Chinatown, and the uh, the lineup was um, we were headlining. There was a middle slot band that sounded like a cross between probably Credence and the Stones, and then there was this weird band called Guns N' Roses opening up. And I want to say it was probably their third or fourth show. I think it was July, it was July fourth, uh, nineteen eighty five. And uh, as soon as I saw them playing, I'm like. Oh, I, I I see what's going on here. This is like huge. And these guys, I mean, they were also like just they were drunk as skunks. They were high as a kite, but they got up there, and those five guys just killed it. And that was the version of Guns N' Roses that is the, the like the appetite version, right? Because I know there was the, the weird other version that had like uh, that had Tracy in the band, and uh, so this was like they had finally got things going and you know they were really making a big buzz around LA plus around LA all these all the punk clubs were kind of going away but all these other nightclubs were opening up where it was basically a DJ that was playing you know David Bowie playing Aerosmith playing Hanoi playing like you know Love and Rockets and stuff like that so all of a sudden you had all these punkers from the different parts of LA that were all coming into these kind of like speakeasy places these speakeasy bars with uh, like a DJ that just had the, the awesome record collection. So of course everybody gravitated towards that. So when the when the glam scene started off in LA, it was really small. It was almost smaller than the original punk scene going back to like 1979, 1980, the mask scene. Uh, it was like you're probably talking about a you know. It was like the guys in Guns N' Roses and, you know, a couple guys from Decry and then all these other like uh, bands that were from different parts of L.A., but we all congregated together. And I think it was basically the whole scene was probably about 175 people total. And but everybody was supporting everybody. And, you know, even like, you know, us all of a sudden, you know, we were the uh, the weird band, punk rock band from uh, Pasadena that was trying to break into the Hollywood scene. And that's, like I said before, that's when we kind of like, you know, the writing's on the wall. We got to split up Decry. We need to get a, uh, uh, we need to get a singer uh, that can be more of a frontman singer, you know, like a Steven Tyler type of guy. And uh, that's when we formed a band called Shanghai. And that band uh, was a very weird band because um, we actually had, uh, we, we, ha- we hit the golden goose on that. We had a backer. He had this great idea, and he wanted uh, Kim Fowley to work with us. And okay. we were just like, we were like, "Are you kidding?" He goes, "No, I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay Kim." And I want to say Kim's uh, did a six month deal with us. He said, "From from the point that I start working with you, within six months and twelve shows, you guys will be signed to whatever record label you want." So we hired him for six months, and I think we hired him. And this is granted, this is 1986 money. It was. $1,500 a week for six months. Oh, my God. He made sure that uh, Kim had a driver, and uh, the driver was the president of the Hells Angels chapter of San Diego. So Kim would get picked up at his janky little valley hotel, no-tell motel in this just weird area of uh, North Hollywood. 
but he he would get picked up every day in this Rolls Royce that would just drive through to pick up Kim, then take Kim to our rehearsal studio. And back then we had a lockout at um, at uh, SIR in Hollywood, and uh, so our lockout was. Uh, I want to say that Kiss had the other room. We had uh, I, we had the big room, and everybody else had the smaller rooms. And uh, and it was, I just remember walking in and like I want to I think Gene Simmons said something under his breath. He was pissed off. He's like, "Well, I don't understand why you guys have the big room. I mean, we are Kiss." And I was just like, "I'm like, dude, because we got the money. We got more money than you guys." <laughs> we did some decent shows. We. Um, we played the reopening of the whiskey, and the opening act was Faster Pussycat. Shanghai, our band, was middle slot, and Guns N' Roses were the headliner. And I think it's actually in their, um, I think it's the flyer is in that Appetite for Destruction, like crazy box set thing. Oh, wow. So there's a flyer in there with our name on it. And, the, and you know, Todd's probably going to kill me that I'm bringing up this band because we, <laughs> we don't like to reference it that much. You know, as all things go, when you have a backer, all of a sudden, he goes away for a while. I think he was going to Florida to make a deal, whatever deal he was making. It was probably drug-related or whatever. But um, all of a sudden, he was gone for like a week and then two weeks. And uh, by the third week, um, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, that's it. I mean, he's not going to back us anymore. Do we want to even go forward with the band? I go, you know, let's just like, let's just not be a band anymore. So that brings us to late 86, where all of a sudden, um, Joey Mastrocolis, who is a guitar player in Verbal Abuse, uh, and Ratsass, the singer of Tales of Terror, they came down to LA to seek us out, and they wanted to start a band. And uh, so it was myself, Todd, Joey from Verbal Abuse, Ratsass from Tales of Terror, and... Um, it was, uh, we, we said, let's get this together. Let's do this. It'll be a fantastic rock and, pu- rock and punk and roll band. And uh, that band was called Pirates of Venus. And uh, that was right around the time when, uh, when uh, Chris Gates had moved to uh, Pasadena mm-hmm. and was starting to gather people up. Um, he was getting a solid lineup together, and he had gotten in touch with David and said, come out here. I want you to be my singer in this thing that I'm going to start. I have no idea what the name of the band's going to be, but um, so I think when that started, the bass player was actually Tony Alva, the skateboarder, oh, and okay. uh, it's, and so it, it's really funny that and Tony ended. Up, I think right when I got in Junkyard, they had just got rid of Tony and hired another guy, and I was like, oh damn it! I mean, as a skater myself, I'm like, I want to be in a band with Tony Alva. <laughs> That'd be coolest. I mean, I, t- I get free skateboards, man. <laughs> Right. We did the Pirates of Venus thing. We also played a lot of shows. And the music of Pirates of Venus was actually pretty good. And one of these days, I'll find our demo tape. It's probably locked away at my mom's house. But um, I think we were the headliner for Junkyard's first show. And uh, that was at a place called Coconut Caesar, uh, which is basically right on the border of East and West Hollywood. And next thing you know, we started playing more shows with Junkyard. So I got to see Junkyard when I would say 50% were covers and 50% were original material. And you're talking about an eight-song set. And I just kept watching them going, God, this singer is amazing. This guy is just, I mean, he's hes the, he's the, perf- he's the perfect front man for 
what for a punk and rock and roll band and his voice is amazing and he's not over the top and he's not doing any kind of silly stuff like backflips or anything like that and um i was just like god this is this band i really want to be in and uh so i quit the band we drove back down to la to drop me off with all my gear and uh as soon as i pull in the driveway my mom comes running out and she's like some guy keeps calling the house and i'm like what are you talking about she's like I I some guy named Chris, and I'm like Chris. What do you mean? It's like Chris Fence. Wait, get Chris. I I don't know. I wrote Chris I, Fence. Yeah. I, I, she's like <laughs> she goes. Why don't go ask your father? Go ask him. He 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 answered the phone. He talked to him for the longest time. And so I go to my old man. I'm like, what's going on? Who called? He goes, oh, he's like like he knew Chris like you know like back of his hand. He's like, oh, Gates called. Here's his number. Well, so so that that was definitely what I wanted to know. You you actually answered a lot of my questions um, uh, as to how Junkyard, this L.A. band, uh, got this D.C. guy and this Texas guy yeah. all together. So so Brian and Chris moved to L.A. and that's where it all happened. I get it now. And actually, the funny thing is, is uh, with Brian, because uh, Brian wasn't in the original lineup at, at all. But of course, we signed with Geffen Records and uh, we're meeting with producers. And this is all pre-Brian. And we're meeting with all these guys. And all of a sudden, you know, we get word that we're going to go down and meet with Tom Worman. And uh, we were just like, oh, my God, Tom Worman. You mean like Ted Nugent, Cheap Trick, Tom Worman? You know, of course, everybody else was like, no, Motley Crue, Tom Worman. We're like, no, fuck that. <laughs> right. Like, this is Cheap Trick, Tom Worman. And uh, we went down and met with Tom, and um, they only asked uh, for me and David and Chris to go down and meet. And all of us were, like, you know, in awe, because this is a guy that you would read the liner notes on every record, every great record, and it was produced by Tom Mormon. So we were like, this is really going to be the guy. So we just got to meet with him and uh, shake his hand and then let the record label figure out the budget and everything. And uh, so we met with Tom, and... Um, and then it came to the weird, awkward silence where Tom is like, he goes, I want to do this record. I want to work with you. But there's one thing. And we're like, what? And it was that weird, awkward silence. Mm. And Tom uh, looks at all three of us. He goes, your guitar player, Max, is not going to play on this record. And we're like, oh, shit. It was, we really were like, oh, man. But Chris is like, yeah, we do. We this is something that has been bugging me. And then I didn't know that that was even uh, on Chris's mind. But once he said it, I'm like, oh, OK, well, you did say it. And you know what? I kind of agree with you. And David was, you know, and David had moved out from Texas with Max. So David was kind of like, you know, we, we all felt very awkward about it. But we knew that it was that we had to do what was best for the record. So when that came up, um, we went back to the record label and had a meeting with our A&R guy. And uh, he goes, well, what do you guys want to do? You just want to record it as a four piece? We're, we're like, no, we're going to we need to find a guy because not only do we have to go in and record this, but we got to get a guy that we have to be in a bus with and be in a van with and be in hotel rooms. And, you know, we had we have to add we have to marry another person. And uh, so we did we did auditions only to make the label happy and one i think it was a sad i think it was a sunday morning me and chris walk over to 7-eleven which is right down the street from our place and um we go in there and lo and behold as we're walking into 7-eleven brian baker is walking out and we're like hey 
hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing Dag Nasty. And uh, I, he goes, I live right here. And we're like, dude, you live right behind our apartment. And he's like, I, he goes, I had no idea you guys even lived here. He's like, well, you know, we don't really hang around in the same circles because we're like, we actually were just hanging around with each other because we had all, all of a sudden we had this job that we had to do with the band. We got to, you know, the easy part is getting the record deal. The hard part comes after, you know, you sign the deal and you got to all of a sudden it's like 100% business 24 seven that we have to make certain, you know, we have to make all these heavy decisions. So, um, we were talking with Brian and, uh, he had, he had moved dag out <clears throat> and, uh, I, he, when we were talking with him, uh, me and Chris both got the sense. It was like, yeah, he's, it, he doesn't seem very happy with the band. And, uh, and we were like, well, you know, is is Dag Nasty, you know, doing enough shows where you know are touring enough to where it pays your rent? And you know, Brian's like, of course not. He goes, I'm a motorcycle messenger guy. And uh, so Chris goes, well, how do you feel about uh, you know, coming down and uh, playing some uh, songs with us? At our, and we had a rehearsal studio uh, right down the street. And uh, and Brian was like, oh yeah. He goes, oh, I'd love to. And um, that was. Oh God, that was uh, four, maybe five weeks before we started doing basic basic tracks on the first record. And uh, Tom and uh, Tom Worman and Brian got along great, and uh, it just really shows a lot in that first album that we did. I mean, we were just so we were so tight. Um, there was absolutely no drama with the band. David's lyrics were just perfect. I mean, it's so weird to like to live through that whole thing because i'm not a lyricist at all but i'm just amazed at how david comes up with these stories and um turns them into these amazing songs and uh and chris as well you know just you know the music part of it mm -hmm. chris you know i it's like interesting to listen back to that every once in a while or when we play live all of a sudden the lyrics will pop up on my monitor and i'll be like wow those lyrics you know it's they're still relevant you know, in this day and age, I mean, which is weird. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys made some uh, timeless, good rock and roll. I mean, good rock and roll is timeless. Um, and it, without even knowing. Yeah, know? and yeah. I think that's where the punk, that's where the punk in us came through because, you know, punk lyrics, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to bag on anybody's punk band, but punk lyrics are either really insanely good or really insanely bad. And uh, there's kind of like the middle ground is uh, that's where it's like if things get political and stuff. And that's the last thing anybody, any of us wanted to do, because all we wanted to do was drink and have a good time and play music. We didn't want to write anything political. But David really knew how to capture what was going on at that time. And especially in his life and all the you know trials and tribulations that uh, that happened to him when he got to that you know finally got to the signing table, and uh, it, yeah, it's just it's still some of the lyrics. I mean, it's just it still hits home. So so there's a few questions about Junkyard now that you've laid out the whole history of how Junkyard was comprised of Chris Gates and and uh, Brian Baker, um, uh, just from you know, a kid watching, you know, the video channel at home. Uh -huh. um, uh, originally, that the, the the first junkyard video came through, and I, 
I didn't realize who Junkyard was and who was actually in the band until I read an article on you guys. And, um, uh-huh. of course, they highlighted the, the band name Minor Threat, and they highlighted right, Brian yeah. Baker. Bolded, and, unlined, <laughs> bolded in parentheses. Yeah. Like, Brian Baker, you know, Minor Threat, government issue, Sam Hain, you know, everything under the sun. <laughs> well, I was, I was like um, – I was in the transition at the time of uh-huh. letting go of all that rock and roll stuff and getting more into punk rock. So, right. g- like, seeing you guys, um, it really, um, yeah, it bridged, it was a bridge for a lot of things. But what really shocked me was how Brian was. Like, Brian, oh, yeah. Brian looked like Duff McKagan. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so was he like that when he joined or, or was he, did he like kind of do like do that before the record came out? And you know what I mean? Like Chris always kind of stood out just because he yeah. is, he is like a menacing type of, he's a big, big boy, you know, like, he's, so, a, he's a big, scary dude. He's and literally a big him, boy. He's, yeah. the, he's the nicest guy in the world. It's right. like, it's, you know, the, the myth is always true with those kind of guys. But, but Brian, <laughs> to me, as someone who was, you know, into minor threat, but also liked uh-huh. Aerosmith and stuff. Well, when I finally saw him in junkyard, it, it seemed like he had, um, discharged from punk rock and gone f- full in to, uh, you know, LA rock and roll. So, so, was it a natural thing or an immediate overnight thing for, for someone like Brian who has so much baggage from minor three? Yeah, I think it was, I, I think at that point, I mean, I think you can even go online and find uh, pictures of him, like probably six months before he got in the band and uh, he was playing with Dag Nasty because Dag yeah. Nasty was playing around a lot. Yeah. And so he, he kind of like, as far as like the long hair goes, he had that look, he had the long hair. Uh, he had the, you know, the jeans and the engineer boots and instead of wearing a black t-shirt he had a you know a nicer black t-shirt or whatever or or a more like cut up one or whatever so he um he he basically i mean he was just brian at that point and you know i think when he when he got in the band because we all wore our you know our junkyard colors you know and uh and i think like we uh Oh God! Well, but yeah, Chris made him a you know a jacket. Here you go. You, you know, and back then, um, our colors had our you know it had the spade logo. That of course we ripped off from Motorhead, and and Lemmy was like, well, if you're gonna steal it, steal it, whatever. <laughs> um, but we also had our names underneath it, and uh, so we gave Brian his jacket, and he was like, oh, this is great. And Brian is one of those guys when you give him when he gets into something, he doesn't mess around. So that jacket he got, he immediately like went to town. He probably spent like, oh God, probably 30 or 40 hours sewing the patches on, making sure they're perfect, probably getting a ruler out and a level to make sure the patch is on correctly. Okay. And he was just, I mean, he is like, when he gets into something, he, he doesn't mess around. He gets into a full bore. And, uh, but it was also something, you know, when we would sit around and talk, it goes back to the almost back to like this, you know, the chat that I had with him in you know 1981 when we were talking about Aerosmith. But all of a sudden, we're now in a band together, and it's okay to talk about everything. So we both had just like verbal diarrhea about talking about like every, all these different bands yeah. and all the different uh, musical genres. And like you know, at that point, I'm like, Brian, you really like ZZ Top? He goes, Oh my god! And next thing you know, he pulls out all these records, and I was like, Oh, okay, this is definitely the guy. And um, 
And there wasn't a lot of, we didn't have to direct Brian, Brian, I mean, it's Brian Baker. You don't have to direct him on anything. It's like, here's the song. You, you right. put your thumbprint on it. And no matter what you do, it's, you're going to be you. But he really knew how to like bring that Southern rock, bring uh, not Southern rock. I shouldn't say that, but he knew how to really put his stamp on like, a song like Simple Man or, or like like the ballads, uh, you know, the hands-off ballad or whatever. I mean, he really just, he nailed it. And uh, so it was just perfect. And, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, image-wise, it was just basically, it was the same Brian from Dag, except he just had a jean jacket on, you know, and, and, and you know, and probably took a shower. <laughs> right. So, so um, there's, okay, so there's a few questions. So obviously... It makes sense that you bring in Todd once you've got Junkyard set in, and Todd remains as the bass player to this day in Junkyard. Well, actually, well, actually, Todd, uh, Todd was actually brought in. Todd the was second the original, album, right? The second album, yeah. yeah. But the rhythm section, we were just. I, I think it was. I, and I and I played with a lot of bass players, and um, and uh, I would say you know Todd, me and Todd together, forget it, we're we're like twins, but um, Clay is right the, up there like number two because he was a really solid bass player, and he also had the uh, he also knew you know he he played a little bit of, of drums, so he really knew how to follow the bass drum. And it was another funny thing. It was like, Todd, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm delivering sandwiches down on Melrose. I was like, well, what are you doing tonight? He's like, nothing. He goes, well, you're in the band. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we're going on tour. We're going to England, open up for the Almighty, and then we're going to go on tour with Skinner. And Todd's like, oh, my God. <laughs> he goes, hey, he goes, fuck the sandwich, John. <laughs> Tim and Brian were were DC brothers. I mean, right. they they both grew up together. Yeah. Uh, I believe they both went to the same school together and everything. So, uh, Tim Tim had a band called Broken Glass that got signed because I, you know Brian was like, "Hey, I'm in this band, Junkyard. You know, they're giving out record deals like candy. Get a band together, come out here." And uh, Tim did that, and his band Broken Glass. Oh God, they were fantastic. And um, and uh, also Mark Diamond from the Dwarves was in that band as well. The only way that I can kind of describe Broken Glass is um, it should have been Broken Glass and not the Black Crows. But the Crows okay. had the image and they they had the image and they had, uh, I believe, Van Halen's manager. So whereas Broken Glass, unfortunately, did then But Broken Glass's material was like just insane. It was so good. So so Tim came out immediately moved in with brian and then he became tim was always part of our scene um and our scene was very small we didn't again we like like i had mentioned before when we were talking in san diego we were from east hollywood we had nothing to do with west hollywood we got zero to do with the sunset strip we we the only time we ever went up to the sunset strip was to go to our record label and that was it and uh, we never played the we the first time we actually played the whiskey as junkyard. We we each played the whiskey in different bands, but um, the first time we played the whiskey a go go as junkyard was with Baker when we got back together and uh, when or when Baker was out here doing some bad religion rehearsals. And the first time that we played there was 2012. So we never played that era that that 
like three block area where where you had um, you got the whiskey and the, you know, and the Roxy and the Rainbow on one side of the street. We never we, we had nothing to do with that scene. We tried to go up there and hang out, and we were just like, "Oh, we don't even know what you guys, you weird biker guys, are you guys roadies from the band?" We're like, "Oh, forget it. Let's just go back to our place in in East Hollywood, which was like." The scene back then was like, you know, Chili Peppers were in East Hollywood, uh, Jane's Addiction, Sex and the Horseheads, uh, God, uh, I think Pygmy Love Circus at that time, so many different bands. So we just stayed in our own lane. We just stayed over there. So that's the whole, I don't I don't know why we get like the Sunset Strip band junkyard. It's like, no, yeah, right. we played the Sunset Strip, but it was a uh, club lingerie on uh, Sunset and Coenga. We never went, you know, we we. We weren't allowed to cross that line. Uh, you know, we didn't make enough money to cross that line. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it before. We never really broke up. We got dropped from Geffen, and we kind of looked at each other and said, well, it's time to get real jobs. And uh, so each one of us went our separate ways. What did I do? I ended up uh, playing with Ricky Rackman for a couple shows, and then I ended up right bartending. On. Ricky was fun. It was fun. We had a band called Battery Club, so I was in the first version of that. And uh, I, I had a blast doing it. It was just fun. And then all of a sudden it became serious. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm out of here. All of a sudden he's like, yeah, we're going to go on tour with White Zombie. I'm like, no, I'm like, I, I'm like, Ricky, I love playing the fun little small clubs with you, but I'm, I don't really want to go on a tour with you. I don't, you're too good of a friend to be in a band with. And uh, so we, I left the band and he ended up going on with it. And then after that, um, I got into bartending because, well, you know, after playing so many bars, why not just become a bartender? So I ended up being the bartender at clubs that we used to play at. And I did that for quite a while and then uh, ended up playing in a couple bands here and there and uh, ended up in a cowpunk band called Speed Buggy for the longest time. And that's actually the the first time I ever saw, uh, you know, uh, a poster that said Danko Jones was, uh, I think, the second time uh, Speed Buggy was touring Europe. Everywhere we went, it was like Danko Jones. It was like playing, uh, we would play like Mondo Bizarro. And then we'd be in, uh, you know, right. in all these like, you know, all and you know all the places in Spain. We've all played sure. the same places. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, I go, what is this Danko Jones? Like, somebody, please tell me, what is it? Give me some music. And our driver put it on. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and and I think it was like, yeah, it was like 2000. Because we started, Speed Buggy started going over there in 2000, and we went uh, twice a year up until I left the band in 2007. But um, right, yeah. so I ended up doing that, and then um, and then Todd got into uh, doing uh, video, uh, TV, and video editing, and so we all had our jobs. So we all went our separate ways, had our jobs, would meet up every once in a while, like when my band played, or Tim had a band, uh, you know that. Um, was called High City Miles that we would all go out and see. And then all of a sudden, High City Miles um, lost their drummer. So I ended up playing with Tim. And a year later, we get signed to MCA Records as the band Sucker Punch. So it's all just like interlaced. I mean, okay. we all we all kept together and we never I mean, there was a core like Junkyard is really a core group of like probably you're talking like, you know, nine to ten people. And we all were kept in touch with you, but with with each other. And we all would like, oh, I need a drummer. Well, let's call Pat, you know, or I need a bass player. Oh, grab Todd, you know, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we already have two guitar players in some weird band. So Tim will come in and play bass. So and then, like I said, Tim and Brian were living with each other. 
uh, when, you know, from probably 87 until uh, probably 92. And um, so when we got when we got the, the call to go play in Japan, it was a no brainer because me and Tim had just got done with Sucker Punch. We had just signed the deal and we got dropped, of course, one year later. And uh, it was just like, oh, Tim, yeah, of course, Tim will take Brian's place. I mean, it makes perfect sense. So we did from uh, 2000, when we went to Japan, we were like, hey, we could, this could be a, like a summer vacation for all of us where we get to get, we, let's, let's figure this out so we can get together. Somebody will, you know, fly us out somewhere. I mean, if somebody's going to pay all this money to fly us out to, to Japan, somebody, somebody will fly us out somewhere. And we ended up doing that from... 2000 until uh, 2009 mm -hmm. and uh in 2000 we played uh we played a great festival in 2003 um and so that was the lineup of me todd david tim and chris gates so that was during that time chris was in the chris was still in his band you know he started the thing and um and in, yeah, 2000, so in 2000, we did Japan. Uh, 2003, we uh, played um, in Cadiz. We did the Series Z Festival. Uh, right, and it was right. with like the Choir Boys, Twisted Sister, oh gosh, uh, the Helicopters, uh, Radio Birdman, and a bunch of other bands. And we were like, oh, well, we went from playing Japan. And then a couple of years later, like, you know, doing direct support for Twisted Sister in the south of Spain paying us a boatload of money what's next we're like well if we did well in spain let's wait a couple of years let's record some new stuff and let's go do a tour of spain and uh so that's when 2008 rolled around and we did a great tour of spain we did um and a tour for us because all of us having jobs you know or that a tour it lasted it was like eight shows so for us eight shows was a lot you know it was like oh my god we're eight shows like we normally you know, from when we did Tokyo, and we did a couple shows here and there in LA, but um, never more than eight shows in one year. But so we did the Spain tour, and I had been over there so much with Speed Buggy that I uh, hooked up with the Spanish promoter. So all the places that we went to, I already knew everything. So I guess I became the de facto tour manager slash manager, and um, started doing all the day to day business with everything. And um, so the tour in 2008, it was great. We did so good. We had a blast. Every show was just, you know, oh, God, it was fantastic. And it was back to no drama, absolutely no drama whatsoever. We were all getting along great. And at the end of that tour, um, on the way back, we were, you know, I basically doled out all the money. I'm like, hey, guys, we did pretty well. So here's some money to, you know. Go back and buy your significant other a nice gift, and uh, we'll see each other next year. And I'll try to figure out, you know, I'll book next year if we want to go back to Spain. People are here to see David. David is the band. He puts out every time he plays, like he is drained afterwards. It's it's like you. I mean, when we did the four shows together, I look at you and I'm like, oh my god, you just throw, you throw your life out there. You you are just you are when you. I mean, in the dictionary, when it says musician slash rock star it's got to have your fucking picture on there because i don't even know how you can stand up after you play because you're just like i just gave everything <laughs> you drained all my blood <laughs> but and that's the way david is and um mm -hmm. and it was you know it, it just when we started playing again with mark mark diamond on guitar 
And we had another guy that we did for a couple shows, and he was fun, but he didn't quite work out well. And then we went back to using Mark. And it was like, wow, this is great. This is fantastic. And uh, we could actually do this. This is the whole junkyard story to me, um, answering a lot of my questions I've had in my head, you know, since that first <laughs> video was put out and not really understanding where the bridges actually lay. Um, and the funny thing is, we didn't know even where anything was going. Even when we got signed, it was, you know, right, those yeah. magazines that we were in. We were in a magazine with, you know, you'd, cu- you'd turn the cover and it was like, there's generic band number one with the blonde singer guy, and they're all dressed up in their fancy gear. Uh, and then you just slap a name on them, like Danger Danger or something like that. I mean, they're all interchangeable. And then all of a sudden, you flip the magazine, and there's us. It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> well, you guys, you guys were always a little more raw, a little more rugged, and yeah, a little, little harder than yeah. those kinds of Danger Danger bands. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So that's what you know separated you guys from it but uh but i mean patrick thanks a lot for this this is oh, more than it's, enough oh and, it's, and like i said i mean you know it's good to hear your voice again uh it's and, good to hear uh, yours and, and th- those four shows got it's just uh we felt so comfortable with you guys and just like it was like uh, on the second i what was the second show the viper room by the five i mean the first show was like get to know you yeah and then that viper room show was just like oh this is god this is just it, each band complements each other yeah so well, well and I, then it's yeah. it's just so fun uh, we had a, a great time uh playing those four shows with you guys and we got to do it again those Absolutely, are those yeah. were our last four shows. You know, we had to cancel our tour. So the Huntington yeah. Beach show, so far as our last show, <laughs> the Huntington Beach place. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> it was fun. But then that's that was a punk rock show to the T. God. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was great. We we it was an honor to to play with you guys and um, and right back at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was so great. And and uh, my friend Damian Abraham from the band Fucked Up. He, uh-huh. he actually ha- he has a podcast. He's a singer of Fucked Up. He has a podcast called Turned Out a Punk. And he, oh, had, okay. he had Brian on this past week. No way. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he knew that I was, I was going to get you on. And uh-huh. he, he was text because he knew we toured together. So he was asking Brian about our bands. And then gotcha. he, asked, he asked Brian about us. And apparently Brian's a fan. So I, I emailed the guys and I go, guess who's a fan of our band? Brian Baker. <laughs> so it's, it's cool. Patrick, thanks a lot, man. And You got um, it. Take care. I'll tell the other guys, hey. I will. All right. All right. See you later, Take man. Care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.